Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? Well, good morning again. And uh, again, if you don't know me, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's just uh, it's a joy for me to be able to serve you and, and be part of the church here. Welcome again to all of you who are online. Really glad you can be with us. And we are in a series through the New Testament book of Acts. We've been in it for a while. And if you remember, even as you heard that verse right at the beginning, the, the outline of the book of Acts comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem, this is right before his ascension, to wait there until the Holy Spirit comes in power and that then they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, right where they were, in Judea, in all the areas around them, and then to Samaria. And eventually the gospel was going to reach the ends of the earth. And if, uh, if Luke would have had time and the ability to write, he would have written all the way out to the, the gospel coming to rural Indiana. Because really, that's what happens. The gospel spreads to the very ends of the earth, even to us today. Well, uh, as we've been studying this, we've been particularly following a guy named Paul. And Paul's out planting churches, the apostle Paul, and he's uh, spreading the gospel, and the gospel is expanding with his ministry. And he's gone on multiple journeys planting churches, and we're in the middle of his third journey of planting churches in Acts chapter 19. And uh, in Acts chapter 19, uh, basically the action centers around this city of Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. It's on the West Coast and you can kind of get a picture of the region, the Mediterranean Sea and Rome and Jerusalem and Israel's down here. Uh, Russia and Moscow would be uh, right up there, straight north of Jerusalem. But that's, uh, that's where we're at. We're, we're centered around the city of Ephesus. We've been there for the last couple weeks. We're going to be there again today, and to set things up for today, I think it's probably helpful for us to learn a little bit more about this city that all the events we're reading about take place in. Um, you know, um, just like cities in our day, cities of antiquity kind of had their own vibe, their own culture to them. There was something unique about Ephesus as compared to Corinth, as compared to Alexandria, just like there is some difference between Chicago and Houston and Atlanta. There, there were some differences. So, so let's talk a little bit about Ephesus. I mentioned it was on uh, the west coast of Asia Minor, of modern day Turkey. And the emperor Augustus, the Roman emperor Augustus, made Ephesus the capital of that Roman province about a decade or two before Jesus was born. And during his reign, the city experienced substantial growth. I mean, it became the third largest city in the Roman Empire with a population of, of over 250,000 people, which is a huge city for that day. 
We saw in Acts 19.9 that Paul taught there daily. We saw this last couple weeks. He taught there daily in Ephesus for two plus years, and he was there for a total of about three years. We're going to see kind of the end of his time in Ephesus today. And uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, do you know Paul says that he fought the beasts in Ephesus? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, some people think that means Paul was thrown into the stadium with the beasts as like blood sport after being arrested. But more likely, what Paul's referring to is metaphorically the beasts of Ephesus, the ways that he was treated cruelly, uh, the ways that opponents of the gospel came after him, the the degree of sin which was in uh, operation in the city of Ephesus. And we're going to see some of those things today. Well, um, Ephesus, it was a major commercial port. I mean, you can imagine it was right there on the Aegean Sea. And uh, there was a harbor there that they always had to keep dredging. They had incredible technology in Ephesus. Um, some miraculous, or pretty remarkable, excuse me, feats of engineering. In fact, do you know Ephesus had running water? Uh, there was an aqueduct that brought water in, and then there were all these clay pipes that piped water all throughout the city of Ephesus into public places and even into some private homes. Sometimes we, we wrongly kind of have like this uh, modern bias against antiquity, thinking that, oh, they're, they're old and they weren't very smart. I think they might have been probably a lot smarter than us to figure all these things out without some of the modern technologies we have. And uh, roads in this, from the city spread out in every direction along the coast and throughout the interior of the province. The city was home to all kinds of different artisans. That's why Paul was able to set up shop there as a tent maker and a leather worker. Uh, But the artisans were kind of considered lower class because they worked with their hands. But those who were wealthy, uh, there were some incredibly beautiful homes. Here's uh, some pictures of a few that have been uncovered through uh, archaeological digs. And just the ornateness, you can imagine if that's restored to its original beauty, just how gorgeous Ephesus would have been. And some of the architecture there was amazing. Um, there, there were public squares, stadiums, gymnasiums that have been uncovered, including a theater that, that sat about 25,000 people that's going to play a part in the story today. But the most amazing structure in Ephesus, in antiquity, uh, was probably the Temple of Artemis. And, and this shrine, have you ever heard of the seven great wonders of the ancient world? This was one of them the shrine of, Ephes- of Artemis in Ephesus. It was over four times the size of, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, the Parthenon in Athens, another big Greek building. Uh, it was 425 feet by 225 feet and had 127 60-foot columns around it and inside of it. To give you an idea, uh, this ceiling in here is about 30 feet tall to the peak. So double that in those columns and 127 of them uh, in a structure a little bigger than our parking lot uh, that was meant for worship. This is a big building. And for them to span that in that day was incredible. Uh, The Artemis Shrine in Ephesus provided uh, that area with just incredibly lucrative business from tourists and from pilgrims. And you know, it even served as, as kind of the bank of the city because people could uh, put their money in there and then they would lend money out and they were confident that nobody, because of their respect for Artemis, was ever going to come and steal money from that place. Uh, Well, inside the temple was a statue, the statue of 
Artemis. Uh, Artemis was a Greek goddess. Uh, In Greek mythology, she was one of the 12 Olympians in Greek mythology. She was the twin sister of Apollo, if you're keeping score, or if you care. But all that to say, she was really well known. She was uh, known as the virgin hunter goddess. So she was the goddess of hunting and fertility. It's kind of strange, but there you go. That's who she was. And um, she was associated with nature, animals, fertility. In fact, uh, you notice uh, everything there on the front of her. Some believe those are multiple breasts. Others say eggs. Others say uh, testicles. I mean, she was, it was just this idea of fertility in ancient Greece and Rome. The Romans called her Diana. But, you know, the reality is, though, she's no god at all. Do you know that? I mean, uh, in fact, uh, Paul says this, that uh, actually what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons, not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. The Bible actually tells us that these false gods behind them are, are demons. Deuteronomy says they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently. So behind every false god, I, I believe scripture tells us that there's a demon. So I think in, in very uh, real sense, there's likely a demon named Artemis, or at least with that nickname. And uh, she was a goddess of hunting, fertility. The temple prostitution was likely a part of worship, both in Ephesus and throughout the Roman Empire, because Artemis was famous. There were temples to her. Uh, 20 to 30 of them spread throughout the Roman Empire. And I share all of that because I want you to know a little bit about this and how popular she was because it plays a major, major role in the story that we're gonna pick up in Acts 19 this morning. So with that, let me pray. And then we're gonna be in Acts chapter 19 together. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the true God, the living God, and that uh, we can worship you and, and sing to you and learn from you today. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd help me today as I teach your word and uh, help all of us to understand the things you've written, to be able to apply them to our lives and, and, uh, and leave changed. Help us today, I pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 19, uh, verse 21. We're gonna pick it up there. And uh, here's what we read in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, and after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, when Paul says he must also see Rome, he's not like, as like a tourist, like, oh man, I got to see Rome. That's on my bucket list before I die. I want to see what it's like there. That's not what he's saying. Um, Paul had a plan and uh, he was being led by the spirit and his plan, he knew that God's call in his life was to go out with good news. He was sent out with good news, uh, good news that there was hope, good news that God keeps his promises, good news that all the wrongs of life would be made right through Jesus. Good news that God ultimately is the one who does it. Good news that, that Jesus loves us. He gets us and he empathizes with us. And we have life in Jesus and his resurrection. This was all the good news Paul was teaching regularly. And ultimately he wants to take that to Rome. Uh, here's that map again. He's in Ephesus. He wants to get to Rome. And eventually from Rome, he wants to go even farther. It said there in the text, he wanted to go to Macedonia, Achaia, back to Jerusalem, and eventually through Rome on his way to Spain. 
He wanted to get to Spain eventually. That's what he tells us in his uh, letter to the Romans. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain. That was kind of Paul's plans he had in his heart. Of course, he never makes it to Spain. He ends up in Rome though, but not on the terms he was hoping for, but that's coming, we'll get there. Back to the text here though, Paul's in Ephesus and he wants to go there, but before he goes, he sends out two guys to Macedonia as helpers, Timothy and Erastus. And uh, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Timothy, he picked up on one of his journeys. He's a young guy who he's eventually gonna send back to Ephesus to be the pastor there. Erastus, we don't know for sure which Erastus this is, um, but it could be the guy who was the treasurer in the city of Corinth, who left Corinth and went with Paul in ministry in Ephesus, we're not sure. But the big point here is that we're sent, just like Paul was sent, out with good news. We are. We're sent out with good news. And you know, when Paul goes, have you noticed his pattern? First he goes like to synagogues and he also would go to churches in that area. So the first people Paul is sent to with good news and the first people you and I are sent to with good news is good news for each other. Does that seem weird to you? Like uh, saying we're sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. A lot of times we think of that as like, which is a good thing, we think of it as going out to people who are far from God, right? But do you know it's also a command for us in terms of going toward one another, we're sent to love each other. We're sent to care for one another and invite one another to follow Jesus together, to encourage one another. We need each other in that. And so the first place you're sent with good news is not to Africa. It's probably to the people living in your home and then your friends and the person you're sitting next to this morning you're sent to love them by God. See, that was part of Paul's pattern. He would go out and he would share the gospel. And, and the reason uh, with people in the churches, and, and the reason he needed to do that and encourage them is because if you notice, we're, we're really forgetful people. You know, one of the most common commands in scripture that God gives is remember. Remember my goodness. Remember what I did for you then. Remember the gospel. Remember, well, remember Jesus Christ, Paul says. He's risen from the dead. He's the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I'm suffering. I'm bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God isn't bound. Paul writes this as a prisoner later in Rome and he's like, remember Jesus. <laughs> like, that's how I'm getting through this. That's how you're gonna get through it. We need to remind each other of that. And even as you think of gospel conversations, that begins with one another, doesn't it? Encouraging each other in these things. Therefore, in, I endure everything, Paul says, for the sake of the elect, for the church, that they also may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we've died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we'll, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. And if we're faithless though, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. Are you reminding other people of the goodness of God? That's part of why we gather. That's part of why I would encourage you to sing, even if you're a terrible singer, because you're declaring God's goodness, both to him, but also to one another. It helps us keep going and endure. 
That's why Paul's letters are so full of what we've come to know and call the one another's of scripture. You know, like, um, I mean, there's a, there's a whole ton of them. I think there's 59 times Paul references it. Uh, I'm not gonna read all of them to you, but I'll give you a handful. Sound good? He tells us love one another, honor one another, welcome one another, show hospitality to one another, uh, to live in harmony with one another, to be kind to one another, to forgive one another, to bear with one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to instruct one another, to, to sing with one another. <laughs> Paul tells us all of these things to do because it reminds us of God's goodness. So we're sent out with good news uh, for each other, and we're also those sent with good news for those who are far from God. We're absolutely sent with good news for them. And those of you who've been to Discovery class, you, you know when we talk about our mission statement, we say uh, we're sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. But, but notice, even that loving people is involved with one another first, and with us, we're inviting people in to follow him together. That, that's the idea. Also at Discovery Class, we encourage you to, to identify your top five. Who are five people God sent you to love? Who are five people especially who are in need of knowing the gospel, the good news of Jesus? These become the basis for our gospel conversations, right? To share the gospel with, with others. Paul had not just people in mind, but he had whole regions in mind. Like, right? He's like, I'm going to Macedonia, then I'm going to Achaia, then Jerusalem, then I'm going to Rome, then I'm going to Spain. And he was praying about those things. Who, who are your top five? Your, we call them our pearls, right? Uh, because uh, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a merchant of, on the outlook of choice pearls. And when he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. And it's just an acronym that we could pray for someone. Who are you praying for? eat with them, spend time with them, get a cup of coffee, ask them questions, get to know them as a friend, reveal our story and God's story when we get the chance and, and just love them because we're sent to love. Be thinking about that. Who are your top five? Maybe you jot those down, keep a list in your phone and pray for them. But we're sent out with good news and uh, good news that truly changes lives. It truly does. This is why Paul was so passionate to share the gospel. It's why he was so excited to go out and, and spread the good news of Jesus and, and this hope he had, because it really does change people. Now, do you remember what Paul's time has been like in Ephesus? I mean, he's in his third year. He taught for three months in the synagogue, then two years in the hall of Tyrannus while he was working the whole time. And what we see next in the text is that this good news about Jesus that Paul had been preaching and teaching for years now was radically changing people. Let's keep reading. Verse 23, at about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way, uh, there's two places uh, geographically where that are primarily where Christianity is called the way in Jerusalem and in Ephesus. And Luke is saying the way of following Jesus. Because of the way people were following Jesus, there arose no little disturbance. There was a man, he said, named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. Remember her? The giant creepy lady? 
uh, Demetrius was making shrines of her and maybe of that whole temple uh, is also a possibility. Uh, examples of both have been found archaeologically. Uh, and uh, it brought no little business to the craftsmen. I don't know if, I like the way Luke writes. You know, he doesn't just say, he, he made a lot of money. He says, brought no little business, no little disturbance. He was making money. And uh, not only to him, but other craftsmen who did the same thing. So he gathered them all together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. I pictured Demetrius kind of like any of you have ever been on a cruise. You get off in port and uh, you, you walk up and there's all these little shops as you get off and people selling their goods and random things. I picture him like that and like, hey, if this ship quits coming, man, we're in trouble because we get all our money from these people. And if, uh, if this temple goes down, you know this is where we get all our money from. You're like, yeah, that's true, we do. Well, he gathered them together with the workmen of similar trades. And, and he said, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, so all of like modern day Turkey, there's this guy named Paul. Have you heard of him? You know who I'm talking about. He's been persuading and turning away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. (laughs) Go figure. By the way, Paul's right. He's 100% right. Gods made with hands are not gods. They're idols. And uh, behind them ultimately is a demon. And, And Demetrius keeps going. He's getting them riled up. He said, there's danger not only in this trade of ours that it may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Remember Artemis was spread out all throughout the Roman Empire? Now what Demetrius is doing here is he's acting like a politician during primary season. He's appealing to everyone's fears fears of their pocketbook being trampled and destroyed, fears of their way of life being radically changed and the way they worship. And he's just kind of fear-mongering people. And it was a tactic that worked then. And by the way, it's a tactic that works today. So guard your heart, pay attention to what you're hearing and watching and seeing on TV and keep your eyes on Jesus more than you do the news. Sound good? I'll try to do the same. But notice, he's, he's just appealing to all their fears. And so when they heard this, uh, it worked. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged. Just stirred up rage in them. And, and they started crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, this was kind of a common thing. And in, in that day and age, they would, uh, when they'd worship a God, they'd say, great is blank. And they'd fill in their God there. So great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they just keep going and going. And so the city, the city, excuse me, was filled with confusion. Kind of like me when I'm talking evidently today. The city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater. Dragging with them uh, Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. They drug them into the theater. Remember seeing that theater? I mentioned that seats 25,000 people in Ephesus. They drag, they just find uh, the first two they can find. Evidently, I don't know if they couldn't find Paul or or what exactly happened, but they drag them into this theater. 
And they have them on display there. And that's just the ruins. So here's like a recreation of what it might have looked like more in Paul's day. And they have them up there and the theater just starts filling in with people, but people are just roped into the rage and roped into everything going on. And there's so much confusion that uh, Luke tells us that some of them didn't even know why they were there. Well, when, when Paul hears about it, uh, he wanted to go in among the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. They're like, no, Paul, you can't do that. Uh, these people are going crazy. They'll kill you. In fact, even some of the Asiarchs, you're like, who are they? Well, they're like the ruling people for the province of Asia. Uh, Paul evidently was, had some friends in high places. And even they, when they saw Paul wanting to go in, they're like, uh, they were friends of his. He said, uh, Paul, you, you can't go into the theater right now. <laughs> like the people are going nuts. You can't do it. Demetrius has them all fired up. Now, some of them cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. As I mentioned, most of them didn't even know why they had come together. <laughs> That's kind of how rage works too, doesn't it? People get fired up about something and they get fired up because... Social media has a tendency to do this. I mean, imagine what this riot would have been like if Facebook was around. Because you like this and click on this and all of a sudden everything you see on your feed is just, guard your heart. (laughs) In this day and age, they didn't even know what they were angry about. Some of the crowd then prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward. And Alexander, we don't know much about him, but evidently he was one of the Jewish leaders. He gets up in front of everybody there in the theater, starts motioning with his hand to be quiet. And he's about to talk. And likely what Alexander's about to do is just say, hey, uh, I know you guys are looking for Paul, just so you know, us Jews are different. That's not us. Just want to separate ourselves a little bit from all this. But before he could do that, because they too worshiped one God, not Artemis, before he could make a defense, when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they just shout him down off the stage. Can, do you have a picture like of the chaos in that place in this moment? Why did all of this happen? What, I mean, you say, well, Demetrius riled him up. Okay, but what got Demetrius going? It was the change that was happening in God's people. It was the change in their lives. It was because the gospel was actually changing the way they thought and the way they lived. It kind of begs the question, has has the gospel changed you and how? And if the gospel, if your faith hasn't changed you, can I just gently ask, are you sure that it saved you? Because the gospel radically changes lives. Sometimes that happens all at once. Most of the time that's a pattern of change over the course of our lives, isn't it? But how are you different for following Jesus? This is a good question for all of us to ask ourselves and to consider. How am I different today than I was a few years ago or 10 years ago? 
or from when I didn't know Jesus. The gospel, by its very nature, when it's believed, it, it changes us. That's why Paul says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. I mean, that's a, that's a great question for you to ask yourself. If, if your faith hasn't changed you, if you took uh, your involvement in, in church, in uh, anything spiritual, and you just put it aside and never did it again, would your life be any different? If your faith hasn't changed you, has it saved you? Because clearly it was making a difference in a city of, this wasn't a small city, 250,000 people. And the guys who were making you know, little statues of Artemis are freaking out because their business has gone down. That's some substantial change to happen over the course of a couple years, isn't it? The gospel is changing people. And now listen, Paul goes on right after this verse and he says that all of this is from God. God does the changing, right? But do you know, um, for meaningful change to happen in your life, it also requires some spiritual disciplines and habits and practices on your part. Like yes, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but saving faith doesn't stay alone. It's accompanied by good works. It's accompanied by habits that help you grow to be more like Christ and live in light of his life. Um, you know, I've been uh, reading and studying a little bit this week just about spiritual habits, about spiritual disciplines. And one of the things that was remarkable to me that's uh, related to it, but a little bit different, I was sharing with the worship team this morning, is that um, at somewhere along the lines, we, we've started to think of our salvation as being like, Jesus forgave us, he died on the cross, Whew, I'm free. <laughs> but in the early days of the church, the first few hundred years, the focus wasn't on the cross, it was on the resurrection. It was on his life that his new life is what changed me. That yeah, it was enabled from the cross, but he, after dying, he rose from the grave and gives me his life. And even, uh, and, and uh, I'll, I'll say this, but I haven't really checked it to find out, uh, but in one source claims that, um, that the image of a cross doesn't show up in archeological evidence until about the fourth century in a church. But today, like, there's crosses everywhere, right? And we, we just focus on the cross, and, which is good, but it can cause us to think that, like, that's the end. But in the early days of Christianity, it was like, no, we we're focused on Jesus' life. And, and being disciplined and having those spiritual habits help us harness that life for ourselves and change us. Um, so Paul says this to Timothy. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. Um, throughout church history, these have been called spiritual disciplines. I, I really like the term spiritual habits. 
better. Because that's really what they are. They're just their habits and practices, um, practiced since the days of the Bible among Christians. Uh, here's a few, uh, solitude, reading, studying, meditating on the word, prayer, um, abstinence from, from food, fasting or sleep, sometimes vigil, um, worship, witness, confession, service, study, giving, so many more, so many more of practicing the life we have in Christ, developing those habits, disciplining ourselves, as Paul says. Uh, maybe this would be helpful to you. When I was a youth pastor, we used to call it habits, and we used an acronym. Uh, we used H as hang time, for God, hang time with God, like you become like the people you hang out with, so spend time with God. The A was accountability. Find somebody to help you in life and be your friend. We all need friends. Uh, we didn't have separate ones for B and I because we were, as a youth pastor, we were lazy. So B and I went together for Bible memorization, right? Bible memorization, uh, tithing, giving generously, studying scripture. Maybe that's one way to think about it. And my encouragement to you is, which one of these could you pick? There's some listed in your handout. They'll uh, be more posted online this week. Um, What's one you could pick is like, that's a habit I want to really dive into this year. I want to make that a pattern of my life and change. You know, think of the, maybe you think of it like this. Think of it like the young boy who's playing baseball or a little girl playing basketball and they want to play and be like their hero, right? And you can imagine the scene. The little boy, uh, he gets the same cleats as his baseball hero. He uh, gets some batting gloves. He's got, uh, uh, he takes the same batting stance. He, he kind of turns the bat in the same way when he gets up ready to swing. He's all ready to go. He does through the same pre-pitch ritual. The little girl playing basketball, she's got the same wristbands on, the same sleeve on just one arm, compression sleeve. She's got the same shoes. And each of them then in the moment, they want to emulate their hero. So the little boy, he tries to swing like his hero and he swings for the fences, you know, and dips way out and swinging high. But what happens? He doesn't hit the ball. He just gives a nice uh, breeze to everybody playing on the infield. Totally whiffs. Or the little girl, you know, she tries to do the crossover and hit the fadeaway. But instead, when she crosses over, she just dribbles it off her leg out of bounds. Why? Well, to quote the great philosopher Alvin Iverson, they didn't want to practice. <laughs> Talking about practice. See, all of those habits that would have helped them and enabled them in the moment would have come through disciplined practice and developing right habits. Why do we think it's different following Jesus? It creates some discipline. We need some habits if we really want to see change in our lives. Yeah, we could be on the team by trusting Christ, but we're just gonna dribble the ball off our leg all the time until we start to practice. So what's a habit you could go after this year? You know, uh, whoever abides in him, John tells us, should walk in the same way Jesus walked. But study his life, look at the way that he practiced habits. He, he spent time alone in prayer, in the word. Uh, so much of his life was practicing and following God in his humanity. Well, uh, back to our story in Ephesus, 
we're sent out with good news that truly changes lives. And if we're practicing and if those habits are, are, are changing us, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna be known very much more by who we're for than what we're against. Now, anecdotally, this is just Josh talking, okay? So you can take it or leave it, I don't care. My opinion though, is that most of the time, sometimes Christianity gets a bad name because Christians often can be known by all the things we're against. Now, when you follow Jesus, you're by nature against certain things, right? But wouldn't it be better if we were known who we're for? And it seems to me that the people who are known more for being for Jesus than against something tend to be the ones that I would venture, I I just have a gut feeling, they're ones who practice some of these spiritual habits in their life versus those who just try to do it on their own in the game, emulating their hero. And they don't really have the flow of the spirit working through them. Let's keep reading because I think that comes out here in the text. When the town clerk quieted the crowd, so remember we're in the middle of a riot in Ephesus in the theater and they had to call in the mayor, the town clerk. And he comes in and he was evidently an influential guy in this city. Um, He quieted the crowd and he said, men of Ephesus, people of Ephesus, who who is there? I mean, you're all shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for the last couple hours now. Everybody knows how great Artemis is. Everybody knows. I mean, there's temples to Artemis all throughout the Roman empire, right? Who doesn't know that? Uh, And that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis, that her temple is right here that this is her home, and even of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. There's examples in antiquity of like meteorites that had fallen and people began to worship them as idols. Evidently, there was one in Ephesus that had fallen and was incorporated into the temple in Artemis, or it was just believed that Artemis herself had come down from heaven. We're not really clear on that, but uh, he's like, everybody knows about this. Everybody knows Uh, seeing then, he says, that these things can't be denied. You should really quiet yourself and do nothing rash. See, in the Roman Empire, some cities had their uh, individual freedom. So they could elect their own leaders under uh, the overarching authority of Rome, and they had a certain amount of freedom among themselves. But if they did anything that got Rome too upset, they would lose that freedom. And so the mayor of Ephesus is like, guys, you got to chill because we have a lot of freedom. And if you keep going like this, it's not gonna end well. I mean, think about it. You've brought these men here who, remember Gaius and Aristarchus? We don't really know a whole lot about them. They show up in other places in the text as well. Uh, But they were neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Wait a second. You're telling me Gaius and Aristarchus, who supposedly follow Jesus, never spoke ill of Artemis? Are are you saying, Mayor, that they weren't against Artemis? Well, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are by nature against certain things, right? We talked about today being the Sanctity of Life Sunday. So by our nature, because we follow Jesus, we're against the taking of innocent life. Because God's against it. And so clearly, they were against Artemis. But what's curious to me is that the mayor of the city knew them not primarily for what they were against, 
but I think primarily for who they were for. He didn't see them as against Artemis. He just said, these guys are all fired up about this guy named Jesus. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, they're proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another there. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. We're really in danger of being charged with rioting today, in other words, by the Romans, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This guy had some gravitas, right? I mean, just like got everybody out of there calmly. So as we wrap up, I just would ask you, you know, in addition to asking, hey, what habit are you going to develop this year? Which, of, if either of these are you known for? Are you known primarily more for who you're for or what you're against? I would commend to you, let's be known by who we're for. That means we're going to be against some things still. But let's make it our goal to be known by who we're for. And I think that happens as we develop these habits and allow Jesus to change our lives because ultimately it is all about Jesus, isn't it? He's our hope. So let's be disciplined in following him. Amen? Let me pray. We're gonna call it and we'll sing.